Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When Tamar Haspel and her husband moved from Manhattan to two acres on Cape Cod, they decide to adopt a more active approach to their diet, raising chickens, growing tomatoes, even foraging for mushrooms and hunting their own meat. With a first-hand food, uh, first-hand food rather, as their guiding principle, Haspel Lamarck embarks on a grand experiment to stop relying on experts to teach her the ropes. After all, they can make anything grow and start using your own ingenuity and creativity. Her new book, To Boldly Grow, allows us to journey alongside her as she learns to scrounge dinner from the landscape around her and discovers that a direct connection to what we eat can utterly change the way we think about our food and ourselves. Tamar Haspel writes the James Beard award-winning Washington Post column Unearthed, which tackles food from every angle, agricultural, nutrition, obesity, the food environment, DIY. She's also written for Discover, National Geographic's The Plate, Vox, Slate, Eater, Fortune, and Edible Cape Cod. Tamar Haspel, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'm glad to be here. Uh, thank you. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? You are. Oh, Bingo. Oh, okay, great. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, you start out the book uh, talking about mint, uh, which, which you describe as positively magic. You describe this as a, a, a you discover mint as a child. Why is mint magic? Well, mint is both magic and an inauspicious beginning for somebody who wants to get a lot of food from the landscape around her. It's magic because it comes up every year, usually bigger, brighter, and mintier. And when I was a kid, we had a small vegetable garden on the side of the house, and I kind of remember there were probably tomatoes and peppers, but the mint captured my imagination because it came up every year and you didn't have to do anything at all. So that's the kind of gardener I am. Uh, and you go on to say that uh, you spent the first four decades of your life giving almost no thought to where your food came from, let alone options for rolling up your sleeves, procuring it yourself. I think that describes a lot of us. What uh, what does that do when you begin to discover where your food comes from? Well, it's funny because we, you know, we live in a modern world that has distanced us from the source of our food, and most of us don't give it much thought. And before I embarked on this experiment, I didn't either, even though I wrote about food for a living. And, you know, we think about food from the point where we pick it up at the grocery store and take it home to cook with it, or we go to a restaurant and somebody serves it to us. And, you know, there are lots of ways that our modern food system is good because it frees up the rest of us from having to grow our own food, and instead we can go out in the world and be, you know, writers or radio talk show hosts or doctors or artists. Um, but I think that there are also some dangers if we get really far removed from the source of our food. And, you know, our, our collective sense of what food is has sort of moved away from plants and animals as we have moved away from plants and, and animals, and it's shifted toward boxes and bags, and that's had some bad consequences for us and our health. Another thing you say, which I can really relate to, you say, you write, I've never been much of a doer, a reader all my life, a writer since about the age of 30. Uh, you know, very curious, do research, right? But from, from your armchair, from your computer, I, I really uh, relate to that. But, uh, you know, through the book, there's, there's a through line about uh, the, the joy of doing, right? The joy of uh, creativity, the putting your hands in the soil, figuring things out, problem solving. Yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy. And I have to give the credit, really, to 
my husband because I am, uh, you know, I, as long as I can do it from my armchair, I can do anything. I, I like the armchair. But Kevin, my husband, has been a doer all of his life. And even before we left Manhattan, when, when we lived in a one-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side, he wanted to have a garden on the roof. And that was so far from anything I had considered. But hey, it sounded interesting. And so that's where this whole adventure started. And then when we moved to Cape Cod and we expanded to some of those things that you mentioned, um, I discovered that that this was, okay, it wasn't just food. It was sort of the secret to successful self-improvement because you're, you're spending all of your time on the steep part of the learning curve. And every time you solve a problem, it kind of builds you up to solve the next one. And it's, it, it became a, really a virtuous cycle for me. And I, I came out the other end feeling like a different kind of person, like a, a more capable person, a person who gets stuff done. Tell me about that first garden, that rooftop uh, garden. Uh, by the way, you, you, say you, you, uh, you say, hey, can we have mint? <laughs> Kevin, Kevin says, yeah, no, it just takes over everything. <clears throat> yeah, well, I, so Kevin broached this idea to me. You know, we could put a, 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 some whiskey barrels on the roof. And, um, and I was a little skeptical. I didn't even think that the, the building manager would have let us do it. But we asked, and sure. And it was funny because I, I said to Kevin, well, what if we do this? There was an unused part of the roof where some of the infrastructure was. What if we do this and then everybody wants to, to do it as well? And obviously not everybody in the building can do it. And Kevin said... Honey, people here don't even cook their own food. They're not going to grow their own food. And that turned out to be true. So we did some research, and we went to the local nursery, and we got these big, heavy whiskey barrels, half whiskey barrels, and we, we got aggregate, and we got soil, and we got these seedlings, and we hauled it all up. To, to the rooftop. And it was funny because the, the thing that I actually thought of as gardening, which is, you know, putting the plants in the soil, it, it took about seven seconds. And it was all that other stuff that, that, that took all the time. But by the time those cherry tomatoes came out, Tom, do you grow anything? Do you grow tomatoes? I, I have grown tomatoes, yes. So do you know the feeling when the first one gets ripe and you stand out in the in the garden and you eat it and it's still warm and it has that tomato smell. You know that feeling? Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So tell me that wasn't, when you ate that tomato, that wasn't the best tomato that the planet has ever seen. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. See? Yeah. And, and everybody who's grown tomatoes or grown any kind of food, I think, has that same sensation that this food is special because you're invested in it. And so when I had those tomatoes and we grew some cucumbers, in fact, our building had skylights with grates over them, and we used those as cucumber trellises. And I, I, it, was, it was a new experience for me, and, and it was compelling. Eating that food was compelling because it felt different. And so when we went to Cape Cod, the adventure continued. So you say that your writing about food preceded this experience, right? Did, did, this, did this experience it, change your writing? It absolutely did. Because when I lived in New York, I wrote mainly about you know, nutrition and diet and exercise and those kinds of things. And I was writing about things that other people did. I was not writing about you know, where food came from. But the more time I spent, you know, in growing things, foraging things, fishing things, 
um, the more I thought that this was a really important part of food. And so I did start writing about that. And I still write about some of those other things, too. But it has informed my writing in, in a lot of ways. So uh, where did the idea first come from to, to uh, I don't know, visit Cape Cod or to consider Cape Cod or move there? Well, when I was a kid, we used to spend summer vacations on Cape Cod. So I had uh, I had a connection to it, and Kevin and I had gone together because my parents at that point were still spending summers on Cape Cod. And so we had visited and gone back and forth. And then, you know, when, when the financial crisis uh, roomed in 2007, and the internet was sort of pulling the rug out from under both of our careers. You know, I was a writer, and all of a sudden, you know, the internet was competing with the magazines I was writing for. And my husband uh, was a commodity trader on the floor, and electronic trading was sort of putting an end to that kind of job. And we just figured it was time for a change. So, uh, so we we sold New York. And we moved to Cape Cod, and we started looking around and saying, okay, well, what can we do here that we couldn't do in New York? And the, the answer was all kinds of things. Uh, you say, uh, this this phrase uh, stuck out uh, at me, you say you chose disruption. You know, there, was, there was a time of change. You chose disruption. Which, you know, a lot of people would maybe run away from disruption. You chose it. We did. And, and it has made me a huge advocate of doing something completely different in middle age, if that's an option for you. And, you know, we, we had our careers. Um, we were happy doing them. We both liked our jobs. But circumstances were changing. And it seemed like our choice was, you know, to try and, and stick it out um, or to just go with the flow and say, okay, the world is changing. We're going to change, too. And it was so surprising to me because it, it was a little scary. We love New York. It was, it was hard to leave New York. It, it definitely cost us a few pangs. Um, but it taught me what it does for you to try something new. And I think aging brains, and who among us doesn't have an aging brain? Aging brains thrive on new problems. And when you just uproot and go someplace completely different, or even if you just try something different, you take up the piano or, you know, learn to speak French, um, it, it, it builds you up to solve problems, to learn new things. And we just started doing it in spades. Um, there's a funny scene in the book, a lot of funny scenes. Um, funny scene in the book where you invite, uh, I think you're across the road neighbor to... To, to look at your what you describe as your shack. Could you tell me about that? Yeah. It, it, so we bought a house uh, that's it. It was really a shack. It's a little better now. We've done some work on it, but at the time, it you know it was a 900 square foot house that was built in the 50s, um, and it's on a lake. It's on a, a, a pretty nice lake, and we were specifically looking for that kind of property. We wanted to have um, some fresh water. Uh, mostly because there was nostalgia value, because that's what I grew up swimming in as a kid. Um, but we didn't want a big fancy house. We didn't want uh, you know anything really built up. And there aren't that many of those on Cape Cod. Most of the waterfront has been really gentrified and built up. And uh, so our house is, is about 600 feet down from from the street. 
And the first winter, I was out there shoveling the big pile of snow at, at the end of the at the end of the driveway. And my neighbor from across the street came out, and we introduced ourselves and we said hello. And she mentioned that she'd never seen the house. And I said, "Well, come on down." And I and I'm sure she was expecting it to be like the kind of house that's impressive. And so we walked down the whole driveway, and as soon as we turned the corner, I saw her face do that, like, that cartoon thing where you express <laughs> disappointment, where it goes from anticipation to, oh, that's not what I was expecting. And and it was, I don't know, in some ways it was revealing, but uh, but this that, that was the kind of house that we were looking for. <laughs> And then, and then she said, "You say everyone it, it, it tried to be tactful. They would say nice, um, <laughs> nice spot. They they would use that word spot. Yeah. They still do that. Oh, Tom. they do. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> like people come down our driveway and they're expecting this this like uh, really substantial, beautiful house, and they see our house and they're like, uh, nice, nice spot. In fact, our best friends just gave us a sign that said nice spot, so we can <laughs> put it on the wall." <laughs> Uh, so uh, describe this for us. You've you got two acres? Yeah, we've got two acres, and it's easy to describe because it's all woods. It's mostly woods. And, of course, our soil isn't soil at all. It's basically sand, which doesn't bode well for gardening adventures. And we have a lot of shade, which also doesn't bode well for gardening adventures. Um, but we do have space uh, to be able to do things like build a, a chicken coop and a turkey pen. And fortunately, we have the world's best neighbors who have tolerated our livestock shenanigans without a single complaint. And uh, and so it has turned out to be a good place to do all of these things that we're trying to do, although I sure would like some better soil. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, you, uh, you you send the soil off. You did, I didn't know this until I read your book. There's a web soil survey. You can you get your soil analyzed. Yeah, well, it's it's not that you send it to get analyzed. The um, the U.S. Geological Survey, survey uh, has sent people over the course of the last hundred oh, years see. or so yeah. to uh, to like every corner of the United States to do soil analysis, and you can actually get on the web and go in and zoom in to your house, and it'll tell you what the profile, the soil profile is at your house. So as soon as I found this out, of course, I jump on the Internet and I go zoom in to my house, and then it says, you know, it, it says zero to six inches, six inches to 36 inches, 36 inches plus or something like that. Zero to six inches, Carver coarse sand. Six inches to 36 inches, Carver coarse sand. 36 inches and deeper, Carver coarse sand. And then, you know, it might as well have said, ha ha, because it was, it was a cruel joke. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, first problem, right? Uh, if you're going to garden the, the, the That's right. The, the, and the, the also soil. we have hills. So when we try yeah. to amend the soil, it has a tendency to, to run downhill. So, you know, we work with raised beds and, and we've made some progress. But again, this is, this is just another problem to solve. And, you know, we've figured out raised beds every which way from Sunday and we figured out what things we can grow here. We can we actually grow a mean tomato, I will say, but we cannot grow root vegetables to save our lives. And so we grow tomatoes and not root vegetables and 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 you know, you you gotta play to your strengths. And that's that's what these kinds of food adventures 
really require. You have to do what your schedule, your financial resources, your uh, environment, whatever they're willing to, to, to yield up, that's where you have to focus. Well, let's uh, take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about transition. We talked about transition from not being a gardener to rooftop gardener to move to Cape Cod and, uh, you know, expand a bit. Uh, I want to talk about how do you go from that to firsthand food. Um, yeah. And uh, so we'll talk about that. Uh, by the way, do you have your book with you? I do. Uh, so uh, following the break in the next segment, uh, if there's a, a short passage you'd like to read, I'll, I'll alert you to, to, to that if you'd like to. Um, so we're talking with Tamar Haspel. Uh, she and her husband uh, moved from Manhattan to two acres on Cape Cod, and her book is about that adventure and uh, problem solving and the, the exhilaration that comes from that and firsthand food. Um, we'll talk about that uh, following the break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Tamar Hospel. Um, her book is To Boldly Grow, and the subtitle is Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. Uh, Tamar Haspel and her husband moved from Manhattan to two acres on Cape Cod, and uh, the book is about that that adventure. Um, so, uh, Tamar Haspel, um, uh, do you have a, a brief passage you'd like to read? I do, and it's about why we ventured into this in the first place. Because I think when you tell people, oh, yeah, I'm trying to get a bunch of my own food, they think of it, and I used to think of it, as, as, as part of a lifestyle, as maybe even ideological. Maybe it's a sort of crunchy granola opt out of the industrialized food system, or maybe it's a prepping hedge against Armageddon. And people do it for those reasons. But we didn't do it for those reasons. We did it because it was interesting, and I came out the other end of of this experiment, you know, sort of believing that this is a good activity to just incorporate in an ordinary life and that there are benefits to it. And in the last chapter, there's a little section called Why Again? We started this whole enterprise of getting our food firsthand as something more than a lark, but not much more. It was supposed to be a fun project where we ate one food a day that we hunted or fished, gathered or grew. It ended up being so compelling that we built a stone monument to it. That was our wood-fired oven. To think that just a few years before, I thought putting, putting some tomato plants in a whiskey barrel was stretching my limits. But that's the thing about stretching your limits. Every time you do it, you have a new limit to stretch. The whiskey barrel set me up for the full-fledged garden which made the backyard chickens seem like a natural extension. And if you've got chickens, surely you can have turkeys. And if you can kill the turkeys, maybe you can kill a deer too. By then it makes perfect sense that you can take huge piles of stone and brick and turn them into an oven to cook all those things. I learned how to garden and forage, to fish and to hunt, but mostly I learned how to do. It is the doing, even more than the food, that ties all these activities together. What makes first-hand food powerful is the investment, the first-handedness, and I have been surprised by that power since that very first tomato. When we began, I couldn't quite put my finger on the source of that power, and I didn't have a good answer when people asked me the most basic question about our project. Why? Many of the people doing the kinds of things we are doing, for, the kinds of things we do are trying for self-sufficiency but we definitely weren't. 
On a logistical level, it requires more work than I'm willing to do. The year I kept track, we got only about 30% of our calories from first-hand food, despite spending an unconscionable amount of time procuring it. But I'm not on board with it ideologically either. Interdependence is, I think, part of what makes us civilized. I do love a good pioneer spirit, but self-sufficiency implies keeping your fellow man at arm's length. In a way, it's a vote of non-participation. Yet learning to rely on ourselves to solve problems rather than referring them to people who had solved them before was the essence of our undertaking. The difference between self-sufficiency and self-reliance is, I think, the goal. Self-sufficiency is about your relation is about your relationship to the wider world. Self-reliance is just about you, you getting out of your armchair and doing. And that's really what what this whole project was about. We started by saying, okay, well, can we eat one food a day that we get firsthand? And, you know, I wanted to experiment. I wanted, you know, a framework so that I could write about these activities. And it just turned out to be way more compelling than I ever imagined. Uh, So define firsthand food. Firsthand food is anything you get with your own two hands. It could be gardening, it could be foraging, it could be fishing or hunting, it could be raising livestock. It's anything that you get dirty when you do. And, you know, it surprised me because when I started doing this and I tasted that first tomato in that first garden, I started asking people the same question I asked you. When you eat this food that you get yourself, and I'm sure anyone who's listening who has gotten food this way, does this food feel different? Absolutely everybody says yes. Yet there was no name for the category of things you get yourself. So we had to name it, and Kevin and I just started calling it first-hand food because that seemed like the most obvious name. Um, And I think there was a lesson in that, too, though, because uh, first-handedness varies. Some people are gardeners, some people are fishermen, some people are hunters. But what's universal, I think, is food and this human imperative to feed our, ourselves. And in some ways, um, I think it has the ability to connect us maybe in ways that we have been disconnected lately by partisanship, by politics. Um, and, I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't want to go all full out kumbaya on you, Tom, but <laughs> I really think if we spend some more time talking about these things that we have in common, maybe we'll do better at dealing with the things that we don't have in common. You talked about bridge building and bridges, and you do talk about that a lot with, with uh, you, you, your chapter on hunting deer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, it, it, it turned out to be pretty seminal. And um, if you do an activity that people in your circle tend not to do, that your family doesn't do, which all described me, you end up meeting some people who are quite different from yourself. And, you know, in my job as a columnist at the Washington Post, I write a lot about agriculture, which means I talk to a lot of farmers. And if you go to Iowa and stand in a cornfield and talk to the farmer, which I've done, that farmer is likely to be male. He's likely to be fairly old. He's likely to be Republican. He is likely to be Christian. He's likely to be to live in a rural community that has a strong 
religious set of values. And so here I show up, and I write for the coastal left-leaning newspaper, and let's face it, everything about me screams New York Jew. And he is understandably trepidatious about what I'm going to think and whether we're going to be able to have a constructive conversation, and I'm trepidatious too. How are we going to be able to bridge this gap and and talk about these issues in a way that, that is that is fair and unbiased? And, you know, I, I almost always have a picture on my phone of the last deer that I shot. And, you know, farmers are often hunters or they, they lease out the, the rights to hunt their land because deer are a problem in the Midwest. And so we can talk about hunting. And, you know, if you can talk about hunting, you can talk about guns. And if you can talk about guns, I really think you can talk about anything. And, and it's not like a party trick. It's, it's this genuine attempt to find common ground, to find something that we can connect on, because that's the thing that builds trust. And once you have that little modicum of trust, then it makes talking about those other things that you might not connect on way more likely to be productive and civil and constructive. Yeah, that is hopeful. Um, I, I wonder... Tell us more about that first step, um, because a lot of us don't take that first step, whether it's, you know, going to the cornfield or even crossing the street to, to talk to someone who we know doesn't agree with us. The first step, I think, well, in this context, I think there are other ways to do it in other contexts. But in this context, the first step is to go outside roll up your sleeves and see what kind of food options are available to you. And then find the people in your community who are doing those things. Um, you know, we joined the Cape Cod Organic Gardeners Club out of the gate because we figured we would meet some people who had already solved some of the gardening problems in our part of the world, and we could learn from them. And we did, and we met people we never would have met otherwise. If you want to go foraging, there's Mushroom walks in woods are hosted all over the country at the right time of year where there's likely to be mushrooms. Sign up for one. Um, go to the local feed store. If you're thinking about backyard chickens, talk to the people behind the counter. Talk to any of the other people in the feed store, and you're likely to tap into that community too. So what food does is it gives us this language that we all speak and you know, we can connect at that level. And, you know, like I said, it's not a magic solution, but I think that every little bit of common ground helps when we're living in such a polarized world. I was so fascinated by your uh, chapter on, um, uh, you know, deer hunting. I wonder if you'd tell us about that. There's, uh, I think there's probably more gardeners than there are people that go out and, you know, uh, hunting uh, their own deer and eat their own venison. Uh, tell me about that first deer that you killed. It was, this was one of the hardest things I've ever done, Tom. And I feel a little bit silly saying that because, you know, deer hunting was something any 10-year-old probably could have done 250 years ago. And But for me, it was a big, hairy deal. And, you know, I, I came from a lifetime of being on you know, Team Gazelle when you watch Wild Kingdom. And the idea that I would actually go out and shoot a deer was so foreign to me. But I also thought that, 
okay, I want to eat responsibly, and taking an overpopulated animal that was doing ecological damage out of the ecosystem was, I think, one of the most responsible ways to eat meat. And the only reason that I wasn't going to do it was because I was a sniveling weenie. And, you know, the whole book is about trying to not be a sniveling weenie. So I said for my 45th birthday, I got a shotgun. uh, Massachusetts is a shotgun state. I got a shotgun. I also got a crew cut, but that's a different story. And so I got this gun and a deer barrel, and I decided I was going to try and shoot a deer. And, you know, Kevin had never hunted deer before either. He had hunted birds. And we embarked on this together. And, you know, for four seasons, we did not get a deer. And we saw some deer. We went to different states. Um, And finally, in the fifth season, we got an invitation by a friend to come to Virginia and it was funny because uh, uh, he has a, a fairly big property um, about an hour outside D.C. where it's just overrun with deer. And he warned us when, you know, you take the turn into his driveway, drive carefully because there might be deer in the driveway. And after four fruitless seasons of barely seeing a deer, I'm like, yeah, right, deer in the driveway. We turned the corner and there was like 50 deer in the driveway. I'm like, okay, this could be our year. And uh, and it was. And I shot my first deer with that deer barrel on that shotgun. I subsequently got a rifle, which is actually the right tool for that job. Um, and it was a small deer. It was it was a button buck. And I, if you're working with a shotgun, obviously you need the the deer to come very close to you. Uh, you don't have a long range shot. And deer was probably. 10 yards away. And the shot was actually perfect. And But that's not a testament to my marksmanship. Modern weapons go where you aim them, and all you have to be is careful. And I was very careful. I was very careful because I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to wound this animal rather than kill it and not be able to track it. And so I only took the shot that I was very, very confident in. And the deer dropped after, you know, 10 yards. And since then, I have shot maybe, I don't know, half a dozen deer, and they have all gone down with the first shot. Um, I still don't enjoy it, but I take satisfaction in doing it well. And, you know, this is where, like, up, up top of the hour we talked about you know, the secret to self to successful self-improvement is to try something you've never done before and stay on the steep part of the learning curve. I have spent my entire career trying to be a better writer. And, you know, there are other things I work on, too. I try and be a better cook. I'm trying to play a better game of golf. But if you ask me for a skill that I'm proud of, I will tell you that I can shoot, field dress, and break down a deer. And, again, I feel kind of silly because that was just an ordinary skill that everybody had back in the day. Um, But it was so far out of my comfort zone, and I had to really push myself to do it. And, And, but I think that's, that's what makes you strong, and strength begets strength. And I wanna just, like, do a little detour. Do you remember when 
Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, came out? Yes. Mm -hmm. Of course. We all do, because it was an international sensation, and everybody was rolling up their, their, their shirts and their drawers, and, and I got the book just because I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And I read this book, and what struck me was the last chapter where Marie Kondo writes about how when she consults with people and she helps them do this, after they use her method and they get their house in order, then they are able to go out in the world and, you know, ask for the promotion or get the long overdue divorce or lose the 15 pounds or whatever it is. And at first I said, what, because their house is clean? And then the light bulb went, went on. It's no. It's because they solved a problem that was in their purview to solve. And that makes you strong. And that makes you able to tackle the next thing. That gives you confidence. And, you know, in this modern world, we have so many problems that we can't address single-handedly. If you have a problem with your, your job or your family or your finances or your dishwasher, you know, you're unlikely to be able to solve them solo. But if you want to eat better, if you want to be better, you can take those problems in hand. And that's really what this book is about. Uh, by the way, there's a there's a funny scene. Uh, I'm not not sure which deer it was, but you uh, it's a small deer. You take it to the processor. Um, it was the first deer. Tom. It was the first deer. <laughs> and, it was the first deer, and so so this one I didn't break down myself. There was a processor near our friend's house in Virginia, and I took the processor. And I took the deer in, and here's me. I've got this uh, this small deer. And we put a tarp in the back of our our truck. We have a F-250 diesel, which uh, gets a lot of work done for us. And uh, and I put this truck, and I and I drove it to the processor by myself. And I walked in, and I had, you know, blood on my boots. And I got this deer that I shot perfectly. And I was so proud of myself. And I walk in, and there's a kid. And he's maybe, I don't know, 18 years old. He could be younger. I'm sure he shot his first deer when he was in single digits. And he's breaking down this big behemoth eight-point buck. And so I walk in and I say, "Uh, can you take my deer? And, And he goes, sure. And he walks out with me. And I open the tailgate to the truck, and he sees this tiny little deer on this I can understand that for sure. Uh, do you have, I don't know what reaction you get. Uh, I can imagine, you know, some folks would be totally with you with the gardening. 
you know, maybe, you know, not okay, but, 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 but allow the, the chickens and the turkeys, but totally part company with you on, on harvesting a deer. I don't know if you get reaction. Yeah, I, I do. And, you know, obviously people disagree about this. And there are some people who believe that it is uh, immoral to kill and eat animals. And if it's if that's the moral stance, and I, you know, I respect a principled position, even if I don't necessarily agree with it, I totally get that. And we can agree to disagree. But lots of people who are vegetarian or vegan um, do it for the same reason that hunters hunt, or some hunters hunt, and that is that they're really unhappy with our food system and animals that are raised in, you know, confinement in our industrialized meat-raising system. And, you know, we have had, when we have had flocks of turkeys, which we do slaughter, we have had vegans deliberately want to join us because they want to be connected to meat that was raised well, that they can feel, that they do feel that they can eat. And again, I think, you know, this is, this is another area of common ground. Some hunters hunt for the same reason that some vegans veg. And, and we have more in common than we think. Let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with Tamar Hospel. Uh, her book is To Boldly Grow. Um, she's talking about her uh, entry into firsthand food, the, the joys, exhilarations of uh, not only um, eating the food that, you, that you've uh, you, you prepared yourself or grown or harvested yourself, but uh, problem solving um, as well, uh, self-reliance. Um, if there's another uh, passage, by the way, Tamar Haspel, a uh, brief passage, we will have you read that when we come back from the break. Um, we are we have more, one more segment now in this hour with Tamar Haspel. We'll have that after this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with uh, Tamar Haspel. She's a Washington Post columnist, author uh, most recently of the book, To Boldly Grow. The subtitle is Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard, and that is out and available uh, now. Um, so, Tamar Haspel, is there another uh, brief passage you'd like to read from the book? There is, and it's very brief, and it's at the very end, and it touches on some of the things that we've been talking about, but maybe it says them a little better because I had a chance to edit it. Um, our food culture hasn't given us, I used to be better at reading out loud. <laughs> our food culture hasn't given us a lot of leeway to solve problems for ourselves. We've been fed a steady diet of disempowerment in the form of both foods and ideas that appeal to our worst instincts. The food's obvious, boxes and bags of calorie-dense, nutrition-free stuff designed to tempt us into overeating. But the ideas are just as insidious just do exactly what I tell you, diet experts say, and you'll feel better and lose weight. How's that working out for us as a society? The food you grow or forage or hunt appeals to the best in you, the you who's willing to give it a whirl, the you who takes dinner into your own hands, the you who gets out of your armchair. We ate, and I logged, at least one firsthand food every day for several years, but then it just became part of how we eat. I still miss New York, but I can't imagine giving up everything we do on Cape Cod. I want to continue to be able to walk out to the chicken coop and get our breakfast. Hmm. 
Mm. Until we came here, I'd spent my entire adult life understanding things by reading, thinking, and talking. Armchair activities, all. But going outside, getting dirty, and coming home with food has a different kind of persuasive power. Things that don't come easy, eating better, even being better, can start to happen almost of their own accord as experience changes the way you see the world. You will at some point undoubtedly get your pants on your head, and that's a reference to an earlier story, but that's just the next problem to solve. Start small, go mushroom hunting, build a raised bed, plant an herb garden, and see if it speaks to you. Besides, what's the downside? Basil? <laughs> Very good. Um, so I imagine that would be your suggestion. Um, you know, you don't have to jump in. Uh, all the way, uh, start small, no. start with something. And that's like, that's like the best part of it is that this isn't, you know, a lifestyle U-turn. I mean, it was for us, but it doesn't have to be for, for anybody else. Um, you get to pick and choose, pick a food that calls to you. Do you like mushrooms? Mushroom, like mushroom foraging is, is one of the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to firsthand food. And I get why people are, are, trepidations about it. I mean, the upside is a nice soup, and the downside is an excruciating death. But with just a little bit of knowledge, you can avoid anything that's deadly. And again, it's a way to connect to your community. Get one of those hydroponic herb gardens that goes on the counter. You don't even have to go outside for that one. There's so many projects you can do with very little investment of, of time or money um, they can fit into schedules where people have jobs and kids. And by the way, it's a, these are great things to do with kids because kids often find the source of food very compelling and will sometimes, you know, be willing to eat foods that they might not have eaten otherwise if they have skin in the game. You know, kids are just like little adults. So, yeah, start small and see where it takes you. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, we just have about three or four minutes left. I want to ask you... Um, to, to pick a success and a failure. Um, and, and I think you would tell me, but you know, the failures are good too. You learn from those, but, uh, the, the, the failures are absolutely good. Um, but the successes, you know, are good in a completely different way. I would say one of our biggest successes was one of the earliest. And, uh, that was the chicken coop that we built. And we had no idea how to build a chicken coop. But fortunately, we had YouTube. And so we looked at how other people built chicken coops, and, and, and we figured out the design of this chicken coop. And then Kevin led the construction, but I you know, learned how to use some power tools. And then in the end, we got featured on BobVilla.com of <laughs> beautiful chicken coops in the country. So that was definitely a score. But then when uh, we did try and build a chicken plucker out of a washing machine. And the, the good thing about that was that we didn't actually burn down the house, but it was nip and tuck. <laughs> but now we know how to build a chicken plucker. <laughs> yeah, you learned. You learned, yeah. We you, learned. We yeah. absolutely learned. And uh, you can you can read that whole story in the book. Uh, by the way, uh, at the end of the book, uh, in your author's note, uh, you say Kevin still disputes some aspects of the chicken plucker story. <laughs> the chicken plucker story. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the chicken plucker was there. There were a number of times in building that chicken plucker that we could have gotten in way bigger trouble than we actually did. At one point, I do believe we came close to 
pulling the garage down with that same F-250. <laughs> um, but fortunately, we, we didn't. And, uh, and, you know, what we had was a non-functioning chicken plucker and a lot of information on how to do it right the second time around. Mm. Uh, what would you most like people to take away from, uh, from, from the book? That it's for anybody. That this is like getting your own food isn't this, you know, crunchy granola kind of thing that people tend to think it is. That um, that there are that there is satisfaction in this and potential in this that anybody in almost any place uh, can realize. And even if you live in a city, maybe there's a community garden. Get one of those crazy mushroom kits where the oyster mushrooms. Uh, come out the sides, uh, get that hydroponic herb garden, put a tomato plant in a pot on, on the, the patio or on your roof if that's all you have. And there are things that anybody can do, and it's, it's surprisingly satisfying and compelling. And, you know, it's not just me. I talk to all kinds of people who do this, and they all feel this this sort of strange power that first-hand food has. The book is To Boldly Grow. Subtitle is Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. And the book is out and available. We've been talking with uh, the author, Tamar Haspel. You can find her at tamarhaspel.com. And it's been such a pleasure, Tamar Haspel. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll go out as we do uh, once a month uh, with our commentator, Tanya Gibson, and she goes on. Just over 20 years ago, my husband and I moved to Oregon for graduate school. Upon arriving, one of the first things we noticed was how kind the drivers were. Going west through the tunnel that connects Portland to the outlying areas, people let us merge in, voluntarily. Horns were rare, waves plentiful. It was a sight to behold, for sure, and neither of us, sadly, were used to. After Oregon, we moved for a few years to a place where super freeways were abundant and relaxed and kind Oregonians would be eaten for rush hour breakfast. We learned quickly to up our driving game. Horns, merged or be killed, aggressiveness that, while not unsafe, felt abnormal and jarring after our stint in the land of kindness and ease. Back in Utah now for more than a decade, I can't help but wonder if driving really is as bad here as all the jokes make it seem. Daily life erases old and implants new memories rapidly, and I'm never sure if we've just reacclimated or things have gotten worse. I know we are more apt to pull out maneuvers learned while trying to find a city park amid three freeway changes than we are to pull out our Oregon wave lately, but is that a sign of the times or Utah's impatience sprinkled with entitlement, or is it just more noticeable now that we're teaching our teenager how to drive? Something happens when you surrender the wheel to your beloved Subaru to even the most cautious new driver. Well, something happens to me anyway. I certainly can't speak for others. I worry. am a worrier. It's my nature. But as my baby slides in behind the wheel, my worry changes to panic. I see twisted steel, car shopping and repairs, late night calls from hospitals all coming at me at 50 miles an hour. That's normal, you think? But then immediately convince yourself it's really not. Letting go has always been troubling, and this is the ultimate in letting go. We had a devil of a time teaching our son how to ride a bike. You could see that something would just not click in his mind until it did. And it was that way for every step of the process. 
I remember thinking or saying out loud when we teach him to drive premonition screaming. And now we are here. And it's the same in many ways. There are things that come naturally and things that don't. And the things that do not, I can see that it's history repeating with something just not quite clicking and doubt settling in. I can't even blame him as I didn't get my license until I was 18 and it became an about to go to college ultimatum from my parents. And maybe that's why I pushed the keys into his hand early and often trying again. I don't want him left behind, literally. I push through my doubts and worries and breathe. But as he pulls onto a street busier than ours, my worry flares. I imagine flaring tempers and not allowing the grace to learn or horns and unsafe practices making him more nervous than he already is. We do a lot of our practicing in the still of the morning and the clear of the uninhibited, but even my panic understands that those practice sessions are not and will not be helpful when it's 4 p.m. and I need him to run something to his aunt's house immediately. Or, even closer, they will not be helpful as he logs time with his driving instructor or goes to pass his driving test. I, of course, don't remember this pressure as a teen. Sure, my permit came and expired and came again. I dragged feet in getting the actual license, but I can't remember why. What I do know is that I don't want to hamper my child in any way and want to encourage him in any way possible to drive often until whatever it is finally clicks and his comfort level rises. Now, if we can just get all the other local drivers on board with the Oregon way, that would go a long way to easing this mama soul. This is Tanya Gibson for She Goes On.